welcome to this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You with me, Liz Tucker. I hope this podcast will be of interest to both doctors and patients. Today, I'm talking to one of the world's leading cardiologists, Dr. Eric Topol. He's been listed as one of the top 10 cited researchers in all of medicine and has been voted the number one most influential physician leader in the United States. He reveals how the smartphone in your pocket has the potential to revolutionise healthcare. When a passenger was taken ill aboard a flight Eric was on, he produced a smartphone that was able to do an ECG, immediately diagnosing that the passenger was having a serious heart attack. It's a powerful illustration of what smartphones can do. The range of tests that these phones can already carry out is mind-blowing, from assessing kidney function to controlling asthma. But the real game changer is the wearable biosensors that can be attached to patients and their phones, collecting data 24 hours a day, enabling diseases to be treated early and in some cases prevent them developing at all. But before we get to Eric's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast, it would be a huge help if you could leave a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you could share and recommend it to your friends and family, that would also be much appreciated. And if you'd like to join the podcast mailing list and be the first to find out when a new pod is published, you can sign up at my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, where you can also find out more about my podcast. And you can get further details too in my Substack newsletter, liztucker.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And I hope to those of you who are becoming regular listeners of the pod, it's clear that what I'm trying to do is slightly different and that a podcast like this does require a huge amount of detailed research and time. So if in the coming weeks you feel able to support the show, even if it's just a five for a month, that would be a great help. And you can sign up either at patreon.com, what your GP doesn't tell you, or via PayPal on my website, what your GP doesn't tell you.com. Now back to the interview with Dr. Eric Topol. Eric is the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, professor of molecular medicine at Scripps Research Institute, and has also advised the UK's NHS. He's particularly interested in what he calls individualised medicine, how using both digital technology, such as our smartphones, together with knowledge of a patient's genetic makeup, can provide more effective treatment. Here's the interview with Eric. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Well, good to be with you, Liz. So, Eric, you've been an advocate for what you've called democratising medicine, arguing that for too long, really, there's been a culture of paternalism, which you say isn't good for patients, nor really in the long term for doctors. Uh, yes, we need to move to democratised medicine because for the begin- since the beginning of medicine, pre-Hippocrates, it's been paternalistic. And the doctor knows best. And that is no longer acceptable because the patient actually knows best, especially when they can capture data in the real world in real time. Our records are electronic and can be fully shared with our images and our lab data and our everything. It's time to move towards people owning their data, sharing it at their will, So democratizing medicine is an inevitability. 
The, the only problem is the medical profession hasn't faced it yet because they're so used to controlling everything. And it's a control freak type of community. Just giving people their visit document, you have still in the United States, at least 60% of doctors unwilling to give their patients what they paid for. <laughs> and actually, until recently in the UK, patients didn't have any access to their medical records, although that is changing. Yeah. And the fact is, it's still incomplete. Um, and it's, it, it, you know, in, in this country, it's it's woeful still. So, you know, we're, we're going to get there eventually, but it's taking far too long. A key piece of technology in this process, you've argued, is going to be the smartphone, because now there are a number of devices such as ultrasound probes or ECG attachments that could be connected to a phone to enable tests to be done that would otherwise need a hospital. So just how much do you think the smartphone is going to be able to do medically? Now, it's actually pretty remarkable. And you can take pictures of a skin lesion and get an uh, AI diagnosis. You can use it to get uh, a ear infection diagnosis for a child. child. You can pick up heart arrhythmias. Uh, You can take a picture of an AI UTI. And you can tell with 98% accuracy whether you have a urinary tract infection. And the list goes on and on. Virtually every common condition eventually will be diagnosed, screened, through the smartphone. And imaging, take an ultrasound probe and you can image yourself, any part of the body except the brain, your lungs, your heart, uh, you know, it's it's extraordinary. So you're gonna see the democratization, it's still in the early stages, but it's boundless where this can go. Uh, during the pandemic, we set up an app that gets your resting heart rate and your sleep and your physical activity through your watch or your fitness band, and we could pick up the COVID before a person would know it or in a cluster, and also pick up long COVID signals and vaccine response when a person thought they didn't feel anything. You said that you haven't used a traditional stethoscope for years, and that when you see a patient and you want to do an examination of their heart, instead you'll do a quick ultrasound of the heart using an ultrasound probe attached to a smartphone. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I turned to a stethoscope because why would you listen to Lub Dub when you can see everything, everything about the heart in, in seconds? I mean, you take the probe, you put a little gel on it, and you are imaging the heart as part of the exam. That's the modern stethoscope. And what's great is you can share it with the patient in real time. So here's your heart, the walls are, are good, the valves are not leaking. What's interesting, Liz, now we have AI that can obtain the image of any part of the body except the brain with telling the person, move it up or down, clock or counterclock, so you can use AI to get an auto capture of the video and then get an interpretation. Now we're seeing this being done in Africa and India by uninitiated people. That is no medical background because it's so simple with AI tools. And presumably, even if I am going to see a qualified doctor, my GP, before arranging for me to see a cardiologist, he or she could do the ultrasound scans in their surgery with a smartphone and then send that information straight to the consultant. Yeah. So the the number of times I have to send a patient to a formal ultrasound is, you know, very rare because it's just part of the exam and it's so convenient. You know, the person doesn't have to go show up again and have this long study for the question that we can resolve, you know, as part of the routine exam. It should be the norm. 
And I actually think, you know, I, I was involved with the review of the NHS in the UK. And I know there's tremendous interest in digital and AI because the UK is already the world leader in genomics. It was able to do that. And I know it's going to be very active in this area as well. As you know, the NHS is always strapped for cash and normally new medical technology outstrips inflation. But from what you're talking about, it sounds like this could actually save money. Enormous cost saving, actually. And you also suggested that artificial intelligence could use voice generation to create patient notes at the time of the consultation, rather than the doctor having to write them up afterwards, what you've called synthetic notes. Using the synthetic note, that is keyboard liberation by doctors and nurses. So just the conversation that occurred during the interaction, whether it's at the bedside in the hospital or in a clinic visit, by taking that note from the conversation with natural language processing, that had an enormous, I mean, just exponential savings. So already the UK is onto that. Uh, When we did the review, there already were certain places like in Leeds and the emergency department that are using synthetic notes. It's going to be the norm as well. By the way, then that note, of course, can be automatically sent to the patient who deserves to have the note and be edited by the patient that takes place. It's not just the doctor or nurse editing the note, but also the the patient. So wouldn't that be sacrilege to many doctors, the idea of a patient editing their own notes? (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what we need is to, you know, get over that. We need to get over that hump. It's a big hump. These are things that have to happen uh, eventually when everything is shareable. And now we understand about a person's agency and their rights and ownership. This should be a civil right to have all your data and to be enabled. You can get smartphones, you know, for $50 or less. It's cheap. And so you could actually give a person, you could give them two years of data plan bandwidth, 5G, And it still wouldn't be one day in the hospital cost. So we're not using these tools the way we should. That means broad use and democratization, not just among affluent people. But there's a wider question here about data, I think. If one looks at most drug trials now, even the regulators don't get to see all the data. But if I was a patient in a drug trial, I would at least expect to be able to access my own data. And that just doesn't happen at the moment. Absolutely. You should have access to everything and you should own it. It should be yours. And we have precedents around the world where that's happening. Eventually, it'll be across uh, across all countries. But there's a lot of resistance. You touched on what the principal resistance is right from the outset, and we have to get beyond that. I do think it was a bit of a missed opportunity, given the level of funding that governments put into COVID vaccine developments, not to insist as a condition of that funding that there was going to be greater data transparency in the trials. That, I would have thought, would have been the ideal time to shift the parameters. That's a great point, actually, you're making. And it would have instilled more confidence. Having that data broadly available to everyone would have helped. So you're right, it was a big miss. Going back to the developing smartphone technology, I suppose the other big advantage of this compared to conventional approaches is not just the spot checks that you can do, but that by attaching sensors to a smartphone, you can monitor a patient's health over days, weeks, or even months, which may be particularly useful if you've got a problem that's tricky to diagnose. 
Right. Medicine is a one-off story, right? You go in maybe, you know, once a year, every other year. And what's happening about your health is all the time, every moment. You can capture that now through sensors that are continuous, and that data can all be analyzed now. One-off just doesn't work, you know, and that just is not going to be any longer acceptable. And the continuity that you get. So yeah, it's fine to get this one-time evaluation from your physician, but it can, it's complemented by this rich experience and data outside of that one visit. I mean, we've known this for decades with high blood pressure and the so-called white coat hypertension. So what's your real blood pressure? Well, we can do that now. People obviously have home blood pressure devices, which are going to get better and better with continuous blood pressure. And we'll know that you know, we'll have much better management of conditions that have been woefully poorly managed, like blood pressure and diabetes and, you know, all the chronic conditions. As a patient, I can measure my own blood pressure or my own glucose levels. I can see what makes my blood pressure go up. When I eat a certain food, I can see what pushes my glucose up. So I've got greater control of my own health. That's exactly right. My patients tell me that their blood pressure can be controlled better by a higher dose in the morning or in the evening, or that this medicine's not working, or, you know, all these things that they pick up that it's Monday morning, they're going to work. And that's the only bad back to work. That's the only bad day of the week where their blood pressure shoots up. These sorts of things I could never be able to detect. And another problem that can be hard to pick up is, for example, if patients only rarely have an irregular heartbeat, I might go to see the cardiologist, but at that time, my heartbeat is regular. But if you're monitoring me over months, you're much more likely to be able to find out exactly what's going on. That's right, because the first deep learning algorithm that got through the FDA actually was related to detection of atrial fibrillation. And the fact is that you you had your watch on and you had a fast heart rate at rest, it could pick up the likelihood of you having atrial fibrillation. You press the button, you get a, a cardiogram, and then you can send it to a cardiologist or whatever you need to do. And picked up a lot of people who are high risk for stroke because they had atrial fibrillation, but they didn't know it. So that's just this kind of the beginning of this era, Liz, about, you know, the, that's a pretty sophisticated diagnosis that a person could make on their own, at least screen for it. Uh, and the the deleterious effects of a big stroke could be prevented by blood thinners once that's picked up. So it's not uncommon, of course, that heart arrhythmia. Uh, but what is unfortunate is it's a liability in some people that they need to get treated. So the potential for treating disease is early, and I guess perhaps even spotting them before they develop at all. Exactly. My vision is this virtual health coach that takes all your data, if you're willing, all your data, continually processing it with the new me- the medical literature that's relevant to you. And we're talking about your genome, your microbiome, your environment, your whatever is in your records, everything. And it coaches you so you never get the condition that you're at risk to get. So if you are risked by your genetics, by your environment of asthma, you never have a wheeze in your life. And on and on with all the conditions that we face. That's the fantasy that is prevention. We've never fulfilled that fantasy in medicine, but we will with digital health. Uh, And it won't be for everyone. Not everyone wants to have this big brother or big sister giving you uh, feedback about, you know, don't eat that because it's not good for such and such. But that's where we're headed in terms of coaching 
uh, with data and evidence. I suppose some doctors or medical professionals might be worried that this is a sort of hypochondriac's dream. (laughs) Well, we've already been through that. I mean, in the internet, with no specificity, people would just look up a symptom. So at least this has specificity. That is, it's indexed to the person with their data. Uh, the chance of getting off the track is less when you have that type of specificity. But yes, we, we, we have had cyberchondria ever since there was an internet. And is it possible that monitoring a patient over a period of months would give us more information about drug interactions and give the opportunity to assess how their body responds to a drug that they're taking? Yes. I mean, this is unfortunate because we have so much information on almost 200 different medications and how they interact with our genes. But we don't use that information in in daily practice. We have so much knowledge, but it hasn't been largely translated to the clinic. But again, someday you'll have all that data. You'll have all the different medications that you would be sensitive to so that you don't wind up with a a wrong medication or a wrong dose. It should be the case now. It should be the norm. But we're so slow in adopting this into medical practice. And I suppose one of the other issues that we don't have a huge amount of knowledge about is how different drugs may interact with each other. Yeah. For example, a patient over 65 may be taking five or six drugs at the same time. Yes, that's true. The regulatory bodies do look at drug interactions, but it's hard to get to all of them. And so, you know, what I try to do whenever I see patients is um, undoing, get rid of prescriptions whenever possible, because we want to avoid these interactions and avoid unnecessary medications. A lot of a lot of prescriptions are given just uh, as a reflex. And they're not with regard to the potential of interactions. So the less medications we can use, the better. So here's the problem. We do clinical trials, and at best, 10 people out of 100 benefit from a randomized trial. That's the best, usually. That means we give that same medicine to 90 people out of 100 who would never derive benefit. Now, that's idiocy. It's a waste. And it's exposing people to all these medications. That So we have to do much better to get accurate as to who will benefit and who will not benefit. No less who will have toxicity, who, who won't. So this is a big area of the future. I'll give you an example. Defibrillators. It's an area I work in, in cardiology. Did you know that the people who get defibrillators today, this is a very expensive, a lot of hardware in the chest, right? Automatic defibrillators. 90 to 95% are never used by the patient throughout their life. Not never used. This is a flagrant example of how stupid we are. Okay. So we have to do much better. And the problem is it's the clinical trials that get to this small absolute benefit that we translate into using it broadly. And we have to understand each individual's biology and physiology and their story to know whether they should get this medicine or this device or whatever. Because a randomized controlled trial can give us useful population information. Right. But it doesn't really tell me as a patient if the drug will work for me. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things that we do in every patient I see who says, should I take a statin? We do a polygenic risk score in addition to their the normal risk factors, and we can tell what is their benefit of taking a statin. 
uh, as long as they've had some type of uh, genomic uh, assessment. So this is, again, a part of that future is we can't just rely on clinical trials because, as you say, Liz, they're, they're not individualized medicine studies. They're, they're looking at populations. That's not acceptable if we're looking for accuracy and precision. I remember there was a study in the journal Nature a few years back that looked at the top 10 grossing drugs in the States. And for every drug that worked for a patient, it didn't work for 3 to 24 patients. So that's incredibly inefficient. That was by my colleague, Nick Shork. Uh, and uh, yes, I mean, it's alarming, but people aren't in touch with that. We, we, we will eventually get through this and, and far better way of taking medicines, prescribing them than, than we do today. I think a particular concern is the people underrepresented in drug trials. We know women were until relatively recently excluded from any trials. And there are many other groups, whether lower socioeconomic or other ethnic minorities, that have also been and continue to be underrepresented. Yes, we've done much better in terms of the gender uh, parity, but we still have big issues with racial ancestry parity. Uh, but yes, you're right. I mean, for decades, the number of women entering trials was disproportionate to the 50% of our world's population. Uh, that's gotten much better. But, you know, we, we have to do, you know, our, our efforts in uh, underrepresented minorities and in people, you know, of lower socioeconomic uh, classes, all these sorts of things are just not acceptable yet. We have to do much, much better. When you look at the details from a major drugs trial, there's quite a detailed breakdown of the different racial groups that have taken part. But the problem is, if you have trials done in one country and the drug is then used in an entirely different country, if the genomics, or in other words, the genetic makeup of those populations is different, that trial data may not give us very useful information. Exactly. That, that genomic interaction with medications, no less devices. So, you know, you started off with democratized medicine, but really has to be democratized and individualized. Wherever a person is, lives, whatever the, the genomic background is of that person. So do we need to rethink how we do drugs trials? Well, uh, yes. Um, the problem is we don't have adequate data for each individual. You know, no two people, even in identical twins, are the same. And so in order to understand each person at an individual level, that would be the ideal way to do a drug trial. So that at the end, you could say, overall, it worked in 10 per 100. But if you had these features, it doesn't work at all. Or if you had these features, it, it jumps up to 90 out of 100. You know, So that's the way we should do drugs. But we're not doing that. We're not using sensors. We're not using genomics. We're not using the gut microbiome. We're not studying the epigenome you know, environment, all these things are not being taken into account. So the, the drug trial of the future, first of all, will be remote and people can collect their own samples of whatever, saliva, you name it, a patch, microneedle patch to get their blood. And, you know, it gets sent in the mail and we get it and we analyze it. Does that mean we also need to rethink the idea of the classic drugs trial? where every patient in a particular group will get the same dose of a drug, regardless of sex, weight, racial characteristics, or medical condition. Yeah, no, that, that's all obsolete, yes. I mean, it has to be customized, targeted for that person, absolutely. So that's quite a big paradigm shift. We know we, know we have to do that. We are always learning. 
it isn't how much that we learn and we know where what we need to do. It's just the time it takes to get there. You know, that's that's really the problem. I suppose the obvious question with all these advantages is why we're not making more use of this developing smartphone technology. I think you've commented in the past that the equipment in the average doctor's bag hasn't changed much in decades, if not longer. In fact, I think the stethoscope was invented at the start of the 19th century. Yeah, I know it's uh, 210 years old or whatever. It's it's uh, it's it's. Um, I think it was back in 1816. Yeah, I mean, it has little value. It, 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 there are some times I might use it if I'm, you know, having to put a tube in the person's throat and check their lungs that you know that they're getting good air. But but you don't get much with it compared to what you can with a modern uh, ability to image. And you know, people are going to do their own imaging. When the ultrasound probes get cheap, uh, people with heart failure, you know, you wouldn't have to go see your cardiologist, you send them your image of your heart. And um, that's how we'll keep people with heart failure, you know, from having to be in the hospital and optimizing their medication. So remote monitoring with a modern stethoscope, which is a ultrasound probe uh, and an AI to capture it. So that's what's amazing is you can get a full, beautiful echocardiogram, which is the most complex ultrasound through AI. So what does the equipment in your doctor's bag look like compared to a standard doctor's bag? Well, it has a sensor that you can get a six-lead cardiogram, which is just about as good as a formal cardiogram, which I use in every patient instead of only taking their pulse. And so I get a cardiogram and can diagnose conduction disturbances and hypertrophy of the heart and all sorts of things. Uh, I also have, of course, the ultrasound probe and connect with my smartphone. Those are my principal things in my bag. I don't carry a stethoscope. You know, amazing amount you can do as a cardiologist with a sensor for your heart and an ultrasound probe. There's not much else you need, actually, beyond that. We know in many medical fields, for perhaps understandable reasons, there's a level of conservatism. What more can we do to encourage the take-up of this new technology? Well, it takes the young generation of clinicians doctors and nurses and pharmacists and paramedics and to drive the future uh, because the old dogs like me, you know, we're not apt to uh, affect change. We need activism, but I do think that the digital natives of the young generation can push this forward and it will eventually it'll accelerate. Just like, you know, remember during the pandemic, telehealth had barely gotten its legs and look what happened around the world. And so we now know that we can do lots of visits efficiently, inexpensively through telehealth and get the same satisfactory, convenient results and only use the in-person visits for the more serious matters, right? So it took a pandemic to drive some change. The telehealth was staring us in the face for years. And only when we had to have physical distancing did it become a necessity and now it's like, oh, wow, this is this is a very good tool to use. Do you think patients can also pressurize the change as well as doctors? Yes, they can and they should. Uh, and they should be clamoring, why don't I own all my data where I can share when and who and what I want to? And, you know, why do I have to beg and growl to get pictures of my, my x-rays or my CAT scans or my labs or whatever, path report? So, yeah, I think... The problem is that patients have been so suppressed for so long, I mean, millennia, and their lobbying and carrying on could help drive the future. 
One of the areas where we've really seen that is in diabetes, because certainly in the UK, some of the diet-based work was really driven by patients. That's a really good example. I mean, half of people with diabetes never have their eyes screened for retinopathy, which is a preventable form of blindness. And wonderful work done by Pierce Keen and at the Moorfield has led the charge. There's so much in the retina. It's a gateway to almost every organ in the body. And some in the, in the years ahead, you'll have people taking pictures of their retina through their smartphone and knowing about their glucose control, their blood pressure control, kidney disease, Alzheimer's, liver and gallbladder disease, the risk of heart disease from the vessels in the retina. I mean, these are the sort of things that are happening now in research. Unfortunately, the lag of it getting to the public is terribly long. If you could predict the future in 10 years, where do you think we'll be with this? Well, we'll be probably one year different from where we are right now, because it takes about 10 times as long for medicine to change. It's so sclerotic and ossified. I wish in 10 years we would be to this whole new individualized, democratized form of medicine that we've been discussing. We should be. We should be much further along even now. But you know, it, it, it's going to take um, a lot of activism, a lot of effort to push this forward because we're so stuck in our ways. Eventually, though, it might take 20 years or 30 years. All these things that we've discussed today are going to happen. It's just a matter of time. It just seems a terrible waste if we've got the technology now and we could be using this to improve patients' health. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's going to happen much quicker in places like the UK than it will be in the US because our healthcare system, we don't have one. I mean, we just have private practice and fragmentation and healthcare is not a human right. At least you have that in the UK and almost everywhere else in the world, of course. So um, you're much more likely to get there faster than we are. And having worked on the review, I know there's the will at least interest in dedicating their resources in the UK, having been commissioned by the government there, that they want to be the leaders in the world for digital AI and all the things that we discussed. So let's see him do it and show the world how it's done. Eric, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Liz. Enjoy the conversation. Really interesting. Thank you. Sure. All right. Well, great to talk with you. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of What Your GP doesn't tell you. A reminder, you can sign up for the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Get further details on my Substack newsletter, liztucker.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. The podcast will now be taking a short break, and the first episode of season two will be available on Tuesday the 25th of October. The podcast will be moving permanently to Tuesdays. In the first episode of the new season, I'll be talking to Dr. Nancy Livieri about a story that is so extraordinary that the spy writer John Le Carrier used it as a basis for one of his books. His novel was a work of fiction, but he added in his foreword, I came to realise that compared to reality, my story is as tame as a holiday postcard. The remarkable reality of this story involved whistleblowing, the hiring of private investigators, an academic sending anonymous letters, finally tracked down by the DNA he left on a stamp and a puzzling double murder. You genuinely couldn't make it up. So please do join me for season two of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You on Tuesday the 25th of October. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>